before I jump into this passage, just a couple of, couple of housekeeping things, really just sort of personal things. One is, uh, well, three things. If I have not met you, especially welcome to you. And my name is Brian Haybig. I'd love to meet you. I'm one of the pastors here. That was Jake Patton that was leading us in worship, but so glad you're here this morning. Um, last, no, t- two Sundays ago, I told you that I was going down to a high school conference, same one that our church's youth group was going to in Florida, and I asked you to pray for me. And, and I mentioned to you that I just, I try not to pound you with that because, you know, there's so many things we could pray about, should pray about, that when you just pound people with prayer requests, you can really wear folks out. And I've, I've been on the receiving end of that before. But I did say, I, I'm cashing one in. I need you to pray for me. And y'all did and sent me texts and Facebook messages letting me know that you did. And I, I really think God blessed that week and heard feedback that makes me think that God really blessed that week. And, and that was all kinds of things. It wasn't just the Brian show. There were people teaching morning seminars and conversations and rooms and uh, the weather and safety and all those things. So I just I thank you for praying for that week. God heard it, and I believe he acted. The other thing, Jake prayed for this. Um, you know, I, as somebody that grew up in church and has been to different churches, you know, I remember thinking before I became a, a pastor, if I ever get to be a pastor, don't just always be telling people, like, we're so excited about the blah, blah we're about to do, you know, and, and we, we want you to be excited about. Don't do that. And so we try not to do that. Uh, I'm not going to use the word excited. I'm going to say that what we're doing tonight, this, this forum that we're having on Southern Presbyterianism and race, I believe it's very important. And I don't think I've ever said this before, but I'm going to, I'm, again, I'm going to cash one in. If, if you can be here tonight, and if that means, uh, if you're, if you, if you're a, a family with children, and if that means you go and someone else stays and watches children, we, we will not have childcare. I would, I would recommend you doing it. And if, uh, if there's just too many people to fit all in at once, then we'll schedule another one. But I, I really do believe that it's important. So we're not taking roll. I'm not going to be counting heads. But I just, if you can come, I hope you'll come. All right? Enough said. All right, we are in uh, the Gospel of John. And we're looking at a section of the Gospel of John. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. This is what we're going to be looking at really for most of the summer. And it's called the Upper Room Discourse because it's, uh, and, and, and this is unique to John's Gospel, where Jesus gathers with his disciples and they're celebrating the Passover, but, but as they're celebrating it, he's transforming it into what we call the Lord's Supper and he's giving that to the church. But in that night, there's this, outpouring of him, of, of teaching, of reminding, and of just loving them and talking about things that are absolutely central. So I want to give this some time. There's so much here that even at the pace we're going, it, it's like drinking out of a fire hose. But we're going to be in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin. John 14, 15. One of the... Uh, well. This can be a two-edged sword, but one of the interesting things about the internet is it gives you even new devices for us to make fun of each other uh, or make fun of ourselves. And sometimes that can be done well. Sometimes that can be done in a very ugly way. But it's funny. I've seen several versions of, of Christian videos making fun of things we do that sort of we don't know that we're doing, and they're weird. 
you know, and, and they're, they're weird to people who aren't accustomed to church or worship services or, or, or how we talk. And I've seen at least one that makes fun of Christian lingo, that Christian jargon, things that, again, if you've been around church, if you've been around Christians, it sounds normal to you. If you're not from that framework, it just sounds incredibly weird. And one of those, I guess, Exhibit A, maybe one of the oldest ones, is talking in terms of accepting Jesus into your heart or having Jesus in your heart. Now, if you grew up and you've heard that phrase, this might, what I'm about to say might sound heretical. That phrase is not in the Bible. Accepting Jesus into your heart, that phrase is not in the Bible. And, I, you know, I've never really asked non-Christians, what, like, what does that sound like? To, what do you think that means, if you've ever heard that before? And I, 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 yeah, I would guess that at least for some people, what it sounds like is, you know, the way we talk about if somebody's departed, like a family that loved mom, and they just were close to mom, and then mom passes away, and they miss mom. And, and, and when they gather together, they, they sort of feel like mom is there. And so they'll talk that way. They'll say that, hey, you know, when we gather around the table and we're talking, telling our stories and we talk about her, we know that she's, she's right here with us. But th- they don't mean physically. And they don't mean that she's a ghost sitting at the table, visible. And probably what they mean is her memory... And all that she did for us is very full, and our, our hearts are very full of that. And so as we're together, it's like she's with us, even though she's physically gone. The Bible doesn't use the exact phrase, accept Jesus into your heart. But I, this passage is remarkable because, again, we've said this every week. The context is, in a few hours, Jesus is going to be arrested. And that's going to set off a chain of events that is going to be horrible for him. And it is so frightening and disorienting and confusing to his disciples that a lot of what he's saying to them, and he says this in the passage right before this that Jake preached on last week, and he's going to say it in this one. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm with you. But as he's saying, I'm with you, he's also saying, I'm leaving. So how does that work? All right, let's look at John chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, 
how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Lord God, we praise You as one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you know that we can't fully understand that. We can barely understand that. But we pray that you really would drive uh, into our hearts this morning that you are not distant. That you are God with us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The, uh, The year that I moved to Greenville, 2005, that my family moved to Greenville, a pretty important book came out, and it's by uh, a sociologist who's also a professing Christian, and he's named Christian, uh, Christian Smith. Uh, I believe he still teaches at Notre Dame. I probably should fact check that, but, uh, but a serious scholar, serious academic. But he came out with a book called Soul Searching, and it was about the, uh, the religious life of, of teens, especially in the United States, and just came out of all kinds of research, all kinds of interviews and questionnaires and uh, just looking at what, the, what this data was saying about the spiritual lives of this rising generation. And the thing is, the rising generation he studied in 2005 increasingly are now, you know, well, they're adults, you know, and these are people out working and having families and things like that. When he and the people that were studying this, when, when they researched, what, what would you call the dominant religious outlook of the American teen in 2005, he came up with this term that's it's kind of clunky and sounds academic, but he, here, here's the term, moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Here's what it means, moralistic. The main thing that we're supposed to do, the main thing God wants you to do is to be nice. And good people go to heaven. All good people go to heaven. Atheists, any religion, they all go to heaven. That's the moralism part. Therapeutic is, uh, you know, God wants you to be happy and to be the best self you can be. And you should be happy. That's the therapy part. And I'm not throwing therapist under the bus. That's just what they call it. All right. Might have, might have therapist in here. I don't know. The third one is, and this is the one that, that caught my eye, deism. You know, deism was one of the first big uh, targets that Bible-believing Christians in the colonies sort of 
went to war with because it was a rising sort of Christian heresy. And deism says this, and you might have learned this in school on the way, that there is a God, he did create everything, but when he created it, it's kind of like he built this great elaborate clock, he wound it up, he set it up on the mantle, he does exist, he did make it, but he is not personally involved. Well, you know, fast forward to the 2000s, and as they're doing this research, they kind of keep hearing this theme from teens that they do believe God exists. They don't talk about gods, really. They'll talk about God. Yeah, like he he exists and he makes things, and you can actually talk to him, but he's not really involved in your life. He's there in a crisis. He's there if, like, your friend gets hurt or you get really sick or something like that. Then you can, can call out to God. That's a form of deism. And now I don't know about the therapeutic part, but I, that outlook is not unique to teens. Now maybe it's easier to observe than it used to be. But you know, I was thinking about the movie at Christmas Time. It's a Wonderful Life. George Bailey. Now, I'm not throwing George under the bus either. Love George. And cry every time I watch it, which I don't understand how. Like, how can you watch this the 40th time and you know exactly how it's going to turn out and you're crying again? But it's it's there's some kind of magical dust on it. I don't know. But, you know, there, there's, there's that scene where, where George's world is just falling apart, and he's, he's at the bar, Martini's bar, and, uh, and he's drunk too much, and, and he starts crying, and he's praying. He says, God, I just, I'm not a praying man, but I just, I don't know what to do. I mean, that's, that's kind of moralistic deism. George is a good man, doesn't really have a relationship with God, but things are a really bad place, and now he's talking to God. If you can do something, help me out here. Uh, deism comes very naturally. I mean, God made us in such a way, and says this in Romans chapter 1, that we know he's there. You know, I'm, I'm reading a C.S. Lewis biography now, and he talks about, you know, I didn't believe God existed, and I was mad at him for not existing. Which, which makes, of course, no sense. But you know what he's talking about is that God made us in such a way that you know he's there and you can suppress it really, really, really hard. But that's just how we're made. It's how we're formatted. But what also comes naturally to us is, you know what, I'm going to kind of have this life and I'm not really going to deal with you. And you know what, I don't really feel that you're there close to me. Maybe I can kind of remark at times that, wow, that's pretty cool that God made that, or that's pretty, or maybe I, I sense God here, but I don't feel that he's really with me. What did God intend? I mean, this, this phrase that you get, and we talk about this when we baptize people, from Genesis to Revelation is, I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the Bible ends with a vision of God living with his people. Like, we live in the same grand neighborhood now. And he says it again at the end of Revelation. Now I will be their God, and they will be my people. When God created the first man, when he makes Adam, he forms him out of the dust, he shapes him, and then he he breathes life into him. And I love talking about this. The first thing a human being saw was God's face. And we never got over it. It's right there with me. And he used to walk with them in the cool of the day. The plan, the intent, is that 
We are with God, and God is with us. And the context of this passage is God, in a very unique way, has been with these disciples. And he's saying these things that are intention. I will be with you, and I'm leaving. How does that work? Because totally relevant to us. We want God to be with us. We don't want him to be like this detached force. But Jesus physically isn't here, and we can't see God. So how does it work? So let's look at it this way. The promise, kind of already said that one, the promise of being with us, the how of being with us, and then the effect of being with us. All right? The promise and then the how, and then the effect. All right, you, you, you've sort of heard it already, but disciples are confused. Disciples are sad. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And there's been debate about, is he talking about his second coming when he comes back, or is he talking about something else? I, just The main point is, he's saying to them, I won't leave you. I will come to you and be with you. That's the main point. He says, I'm going to do that, but he says, my father's going to do that. My father will love you, and my father will be with you. Now, look at the kind of language he uses. Uh, you get a hint of it in verse 21. Look at the second part of verse 21. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. But then he he turns it up in verse 23. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, let me be theological here for a second. The doctrine of the Trinity is that there is one God. Not three gods, but our one God exists as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you, sometimes as somebody that teaches, preaches, when I'm talking sometimes about the Trinity and I mention, let's say, two of the persons of the Trinity, let's say like I'm talking about the Father and the Son, I'll catch myself sometimes that I don't want to use the pronoun they because there's one God. And I don't want to be confusing about that. We have one God. But look at how Jesus used plural pronouns. I've never noticed this before. Verse 23. Let me read it again. We will come to him, my father and I, we will come to him and make our home with him. And he really means it. Uh, I mean, you know, like when you've sent out an invitation, maybe you had some get together and you sent out some kind of online evite sort of thing. And, uh, and so you get, a, you get some no's back and you can leave comments on the no and somebody writes, hey, we'll definitely, we'll definitely be with you in spirit. Now we know what that means. I'm not going to be there. You know, and I, I've joked about, I mean, you, this is fine. I'm not like scolding anybody, but if somebody says, hey, you know, we're going to be out of town this Sunday, but we'll be with you in spirit, that means we will not be in church Sunday. And we understand that. He's not saying that. He's saying, I'm leaving to go to the Father. 
in heaven. But the Father will be with you, and I will be with you. And that's a real theological dilemma. How does that work? You know, he's already, he's, he says in here things like, while I'm still with you, and that must have just made their stomachs triple the acid to hear him say, while I'm still with you, because that's the language of what? I'm leaving. And he said back in the last chapter, where I'm going, you cannot come. I'm going to a place where you cannot come, and I will be with you, and my Father will be with you. So how? And I think you already know where this is going. Look, uh, let's look at two or three passages. Go back up to verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another. Now, English translators struggle with this term. It could be comforter. It could be, at some level, encourager, but in a very strong way. I'm going to send you someone who puts courage in you. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, you know Him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. Go down to verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And look down after our passage at the verse in italics. This is from the next chapter. But I wanted to grab this because it says so much of the same, of the same thing. Look at what Jesus says. When the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now, just in those passages, Jesus is talking about who? The Holy Spirit. And just so we're clear, the Holy Spirit is not an it. He's a he. That's even clear in the Greek pronouns. He is a he. He's the third person of the Trinity, He's equal in power and glory to the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit has as much power as God the Father. The Holy Spirit has as much glory as God the Father. Jesus says this, another helper is going to come to you. And just from those verses that we read, what did we learn about him? He's going to be sent by the Father. Now listen to this list, okay? He's going to be sent by the Father. He's the truth. He'll teach you everything you need to know. And the world doesn't know him, but you know him. Does that list remind you of anyone? He's sent from the Father. He's the truth. He'll teach you all things you need to know that my Father wants you to know. And even though the world doesn't know him, you know him. That's how Jesus has been talking about himself. He says, the Father's going to send to you the Spirit. And sometimes he speaks as if, I will send to you the Spirit. And when you have the Spirit, you'll have what I have been to you. Here's the reality. Where the Holy Spirit is, Christ is. Where the Holy Spirit is, Christ is. Jesus physically 
cannot live in our hearts. The Spirit can. And when you think heart, don't think organ, chambers, ventricles. Like, in my inner being, the control center of how I actually do my life, the Holy Spirit, equal in power and glory, who proceeds from the Father and from the Son, can live in our insides and be with us. Now, when you first hear God wants to be with us, and by His Spirit, God is with us, if you're just kind of like on autopilot, you can go, good. Have you thought about that? Like I was thinking about, I've had moments where I'll be in the drugstore, like at Walgreens or something, and I'm not buying anything super embarrassing, but it's like, it's a drugstore run, so like you're standing in front of the whole deodorant section, and we live in a country where there's enough kinds of deodorants that there is a deodorant section. So when you're standing in front of it, everyone knows what you're buying. And I've actually had moments where I've been, you know, someplace like that, and I'm standing there, and I've seen one of you. And so, you know, we'll talk, and, and you're, you know, you're very kind, and we'll talk for a while, and then you'll walk off. And I'll just think, I feel funny. <laughs> you know, it's like, I want to be with you in worship, and I want to be with you in other settings, but... I'm buying deodorant, and I don't know. You know, like, what we could call it is it's too with. It's just too with. I mean, I think when, when, like, if we're just kind of being, if we're not thinking very deeply about this and we say, okay, God is going to be with us, we can just sort of be surfacy, like, "Mm, in the hard times, isn't that great that, that in those hard times, on those hard days, God is with us? And I don't want to diminish that at all, but... God is with us all the time. I mean, I've told some of you the story of when, I probably won't tell it at 11 o'clock because he'll be here, but when our oldest Henry was a little boy and I was telling him goodnight and I was sitting on his bed and we were actually, we were talking about God and and I'm I'm just kind of doing the dad thing and saying, you know, God is everywhere. And, of course, boys start asking those questions. And he says, is he in that closet? And there was this weird reversal where I thought, like, I will be, you know, I'm being the, the dad teaching my son. And then it freaked me out. He said, is he in the closet? And I found myself going, yes. <laughs> and then I remember this. He said, is he on the bed with us? Yes. I used to love to ask students this when I was a campus minister. Um, Wow, how is it comforting that God is with us? And again, kind of autopilot, like, ah, during the hard times and when schools struggle or I'm lonely or whatever. And for real, I don't want to diminish that at all. But then the follow-up question that I used to love to ask is, how is it disturbing that God is with us? on dates, when I'm alone, when I'm telling myself lies, when I'm not just in my head, I'm out loud imagining the person I want to curse, and I'm saying it 
because no one's around to hear it. And I just want to like get it out, which by the way, that doesn't work. You know, when you give a fire more oxygen, it burns hotter. And he's with us. What do we do with that? Well, I want to think about this. I want to think about the effect of him being with us. Look at what, look at what Jesus says repeatedly. Verse 15 up at the top. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And in the next verse, it's stated in the negative. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. This is interesting because Jesus is talking to people who are confused and afraid, and they don't understand what's going. And, And repeatedly he's saying, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I think to us who get so many things wrong, it almost sounds like a threat. Like, hey, if you know what's good for you, you'll keep my commandments. Is that how he's saying it? It can't be that. He is reassuring them. It's not a threat. It's a dynamic. What he's saying is not a threat. It's a dynamic. He's saying this. When you really love me, it changes you. How would that happen? Now, I I feel like I'm kind of going zero to 60 here, but if what I'm about to say is confusing to you or intriguing to you, and you've just started coming, I hope you'll keep coming. But the Jesus that we get in the Scriptures comes to us and is very honest and says, your sin will destroy you. Your sin will destroy you. It has already enslaved you. You're already under condemnation. And wow, when you hear someone be that honest, you think, gosh, I don't know if I can be around you. And then he says, turn to me. Believe in me. Believe in me that I can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I will give you life. I will make you clean. I will take away your guilt. I will give you my Father. He loves you and sent me. I love you and will lay down my life for you. Turn to me. When you just flat out break God's commandments, when I break God's commandments and I know I'm breaking them, besides the ones I don't even know about, the ones I know I'm breaking and I don't care, and you find yourself going back to Jesus to talk to him about things where you've said, 8,000 times before that. I'm never going to do this again. I mean it this time. I'm not ever going to do that again. And you do it the 8,000 and first time, and you go back to him and say, have mercy on me. And he always welcomes his people. He always, always, always wants us to turn to him. That endears him to us. That changes us. And and I find this to be something that I kind of get, but I think it takes a lifetime to even moderately get. We tend to think, 
that life change comes primarily through the will. Does that make sense? Like, I will through my willpower. I will through my intentionality and focus. I will change my behaviors. And you know what the Bible keeps saying in all kinds of different ways? You change through your loves. And we've said this before. We do what we do because we love what we love. Like, if you love golf more than Jesus, Jesus doesn't come up and say, don't love golf. What he says is, love me more. Have no other loves before me. The only thing that will change you is if turning to Him and through the work of His Spirit, again and again turning to Him, this good news becomes better and better and better so that really there is nothing and no one that is as lovely as Jesus. That's the only thing that will change us. I feel like I got sort of a in some ways, kind of a, a, a reflection of that dynamic when I married Dana. I, I, I have struggled my whole life with procrastination, which is not like a super embarrassing, you know, thing to talk about, but I'll kind of, I'll go easy on, on us here. But I, I and, and there have been times where my procrastination hasn't just messed me up, it's messed work things up. Um, it, it, you know, it let someone else down. It affected other people. It affected grades. I, procrastination affected my entire school life. Uh, I once had a paper in college that I put off so long I just shut down and stopped going to class. The professor had to call my dad. Like, that's weird. So I've struggled with it my whole life, and the biggest change I ever experienced was my last year of schooling, which was my last year of seminary, which was my first year of marriage. Now, I'm not saying I'm totally over it. I, I, I still fall into it to this day, but that year was the most dramatic change of being on top of things, turning something in early or starting to work on it earlier. And, I've, you know, I, I've thought back on it, and I've thought, I loved Dana before that, but I didn't live with her. And it was something about her being there. She never nagged me about school, ever. But there was something about her being there where I just felt, don't be a tool shed. Work on things. She didn't have to say, I just felt it. Like, don't be a doofus. Look at her. And I, it honestly, like, it changed my behavior. It was not through the will. It affected the will, but it was through affections. And it, it is the love of God to not only say, I want to be with you. Like, you, you disobey me. You turn from me. You dishonor me. I really do love you. I really do like you. I still cannot get my mind around that. 
that he, can, that he is holy, 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 and he wants to be with us. But as he's with us by his Spirit, the great thing he does over and over and over is to turn us to Jesus. And you know what? You need that if you've been a Christian for decades, and you need that if you're here and you're going, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. You know what? If you're even asking that question, that might be the work of the Holy Spirit nudging you to do the thing that he will nudge you to do for the rest of your life. You need to turn to God the Son. And you'll love him. But you'll love him because he first loved you. And that will change you. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for sending the Son. And our Father, Son of God, Lord Jesus, we thank you for sending the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we thank you for turning us to the Lord Jesus. And we pray for ourselves, we pray for this room that be we Christians or be we not yet Christians, that you would supernaturally turn us to the risen Christ and give us faith or renew our faith and convince us that you are with us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.